Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. Hello, I'm uh, David Yoon, Professor of Development Studies at the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. And it's my great pleasure today to be able to interview a friend who I first met just 50 years ago, Dr. David Little, an environmental consultant who now lives just outside of uh, Cambridge and has worked internationally on oil spills for a major part of his life. I think we'll be giving you a link to a paper, or David has written most of it, and uh, Stephen Shepard and I, uh, colleagues over the years, well, friends over the years of David's, have uh, have tried to help uh, him sharpen it, but I'm not sure whether we achieve that. David, do you want to just introduce yourself? Hello. Um, yeah, as, as David says, I've been working on oil spills for a very long time. Not all the time, but they occur unpredictably. I worked for the uh, Field Studies Council, an NGO with then about a dozen field centres around Britain, now many, many more, and of course, hopefully very important in the modern times. I got a job in Milford Haven, then and now probably one of the biggest oil ports in, uh, in the country, and indeed Northwest Europe, and I worked there for an, another part of the same NGO, monitoring, uh, well, first of all, teaching uh, geography geology and ornithology to various uh, ages of kids. And of course, they were interested in pollution. They were interested in the refineries, in the estuary of Milford Haven. And we graduated from there, my wife and I, to a research post across the other side of the Haven, monitoring North Sea and estuaries as the oil industry grew through the 70s. And that that led in the end, really, I suppose, to the oil spill assignments, which gradually got more exotic. Starting in Milford Haven, uh, I worked for two and a half years, more or less full time on the Exxon Valdez, 1989 to 91. We relocated to Seattle and Alaska to do that. Came back and just in time for the Brer spill in 1993 in Shetland. And following that in 1996, the Sea Empress back home in Milford Haven. So that was a kind of circle completed. And since then, largely under private practice in semi-retirement as well, I've worked for UNEP just after the Lebanon war, where uh, a big power station was bombed by the Israeli Air Force in retaliation for Hezbollah rocket attacks. And I did so well under under a year after the hostilities ended, UNEP signed me up to review their... um, landmark report on the Niger Delta and I'll come to that probably in later questions but from 2011 I've worked for UNEP in Nigeria maybe 10 or 12 visits and also for the United Nations Compensation Commission in Saudi Arabia after the 1991 Gulf War and that brings us up to date because the cleanup in those two areas is ongoing decades later and that kind of summarizes how I got to this position. <laughs> Great, David. We've both um, yeah, taken different career paths since uh, we started off with common interest in the environment, bird watching, velvet underground, working in Nigeria together. We've gone our separate ways. But I wonder if I can just ask you, I mean, you mentioned the Exxon Valdez and Breur. And for people of our age, that's something we can probably remember those names because those were 
very important incidents. But I just want to whether you could tell us a little bit about the specialization that you developed when you were looking at oil spills, because I, I think you went down a, a scientific route for quite a while. Oh, for those spills, I was really just part of a, of a, of a team. But you're right, because the specialisms had to come in because you can't really respond to any environmental pollution incident without a kind of multidisciplinary approach and a sort of human geography approach as well. You know, I think it's becoming more and more fashionable for scientists to uh, reluctantly admit that they haven't got all the answers. And I think we're seeing that with the COVID pandemic, that we need good communications, we need people to work in teams, and we need politics to keep out of it as far as possible. So I think the specialism that, that I got into, well, it really started with being a sort of technician. When I first started after teaching for two and a half years, I was the only non-ecology or biology person being a geographer. Although sympathetic, you know, having done biogeography courses, I sort of knew part of the language, but not never a proper taxonomist or a theoretical ecologist. So I was basically sieving sand or, uh, you know, using a coulter counter to, to measure particle size of the mud so that the biologists could write very professional and authoritative reports on monitoring programs from the North Sea or West Africa or wherever. And there was like 20 or so biologists and only one or two chemists and one or two geography types looking at the sediments. Then I got sort of snatched by um, one of the uh, trustees of the Field Studies Council, who was a geologist from King's College London. And I registered under him as a MPhil and then PhD student at London, which I did part-time for over a decade and wrote up after Valdez without mentioning Valdez. So I was registered in 82, submitted in 92 or 93, having you know, more or less finished my, my contribution at, um, in Alaska and writing up in Seattle. So I didn't get my specialism by doing a PhD. I kind of consolidated that and then parked it again, you know, having done a lot of spills before writing the PhD. Unusual. It was an NERC, a NERC industrial studentship. Won't take you on to that, but PhDs are much more structured nowadays. They're yeah. all sorts of hoops and uh, and that, and most universities wouldn't allow you 10 years. I mean, when I was writing the paper that, uh, that Stephen and I sort of contributed to with you, I mean, I was horrified to understand the scale of damage which recovery caused in certainly those early oil spills in which you were involved, in which the the chemicals seemed to be worse than the oil that was to be treated. But uh, I wonder if you just talk us through the sort of yeah, that, and that goes back to how I really, you know, at the age of 14 or so, both Stephen and I had already been sort of, along with most people, young, young and old, when we saw the March 1967 Torrey Canyon, black and white, it was almost sepia and white uh, footage on the TV. And then the RAF came in and tried napalm and uh, incendiary bombs they tried sinking the oil. This is off the Scilly Isles in a beauty. You know, Harold Wilson was in charge then. And, you know, he went on his holidays in the Scilly Isles. So the Torrey Canyon was an outrage, basically, an instantaneous outrage at a global level. And so we were, we were already birdwatchers, as you were, uh, although I hadn't met you then. And 
you know, my mum and dad were sort of counselling me almost. And dad would say he'd just retired a, a year or two before from the Royal Navy. And one of his jobs in one of his ships was supervising refuelling, where if it goes wrong, it ain't just an oil slick and some storm petrols or fulmer petrols that get covered in petrol. You know, it's, it's risky to, to human life. They have to hitch up lines, get them across to the other vessel in whatever weather condition. And, I, you know, listening to my dad, I just thought, and watching the telly about the Torrey Canyon, it just literally, it seemed like a, a, a you know, a crusade was, was needed, you know. And it became more and more specialised and more and more mundane, in a way, as, as knowledge increased. The, the driving force with me was birds and environmental impact, but I only came back into it as a technical person via my physical geography and sieving sand and working out how to write a computer program for a data reduction. We did thousands of samples a year, and we had to integrate all that with the ecology data. Uh, it was great. It was a great team effort. And working for a charity was great, too. There was never any of the management consulting and kind of spin aspects of what is now taken to be environmental consulting in the modern world. I mean, so what are, I mean, you've, you, you've been seeing oil spills for a while. What, what are the main things that have been learned? What do people do very differently now that they, they didn't do then? Well, your previous question was the first wake-up call when Torrey Canyon happened as I implied with the napalm and the, and, and the sinking agents they used, which were heavy minerals, everything they threw at that disaster seemed to make it worse. And biologists from Plymouth and, and also Pembrokeshire are still periodically looking at those shores, the shores that were only slightly oiled or moderately oiled, but were not cleaned in an aggressive way, have recovered basically. Recovered enough for people to be able to detect the impacts of anti-fouling tin, you know, from ships on the community. So you've had one impact, a recovery, and you've got back to a, a kind of natural balance, as it were. I hesitate to use that word, but such that a new impact can be determined. But on the shores that were aggressively cleaned, it's decade. Initially, the shores were covered in green weed. Because everything that normally eats the green weed, mainly limpets, had been killed as soon as the oil and the chemicals got mixed up and they, and they ingested both of them. Whereas on the oil alone shores, many of the invertebrates and the grazers survived so that the algae didn't have this horrendous bloom, which then took years to actually work through and, and for a proper community to kind of re-establish itself. Then, Having learned that lesson, the next major spill, 1978, was Amoco Again, it was rocky shores and big sandy bays, lots and lots of seafood. Unlike us, they love their mussels and oysters and everything. So that was a huge impact, both economically and ecologically. And we also learned the lesson there that you can't send untrained people with the best will in the world to clean up, which is largely a manual operation but they used a lot of uh, heavy equipment and diggers as well and did intrusive cleanup on fine sediment shores, which are very slow to accrete. They get colonized by vegetation. 
if you take that sediment away because it's got oil in it, you're actually setting back the geomorphological sort of evolution of that piece of shore to a point where, you know, before the critters arrived, before the mud arrived and before the plants arrived and grew. So that took many years to recover, maybe six or seven years from memory. You can transplant and things like that. And simultaneously with the Amacocades, our group was, was experimenting at our worst oil refinery site in Southampton Water, where Esso had managed to, since the 1950s, had managed to kill off a large area of salt marsh. It was completely denuded of macrophytes. And we were taking little plugs of sediment from nearby marsh and plugging them in like a hair transplant. <laughs> and those clumps were visible, slowly growing. And I last visited it in about 2005. And the marsh flora was uniform again, not uniform in terms of composition, but at least it, there were no areas of bare oily mud. So no, no chemical dispersants were used there, no mechanical cleanup was used there, but people uh, allowed, you know, used ecological restoration, really. Phytoremediation is what it's called now. Mm. Let the plants, you know, recycle the carbon, including the oil, and it becomes less and less toxic. So we learned that. If you can weather the storm and get the heaviest accumulations of whole oil, bulk oil, and get them on pocket beaches that you can boom and then recover that oil, you'll get 90% of the oil that you can pick up and send back to the refinery in just those few sites. If you chase all the sheens and throw chemicals at thin oil, you're going to do more damage than just leaving that oil to disperse and weather naturally. And that's a hard sell when the media and even the NGOs, conservation NGOs, still are very reluctant to approve dispersants in those places where dispersants will help, namely offshore. But not so far offshore that nothing much is going to get harmed by it, by the oil being left alone. There's lots of other lessons that would be wrong to suggest that those, I mean, there's a lot of institutional arrangements. For example, I just list them, you know, the compensation packages internationally agreed treaties, best practice manuals, the whole idea of surveillance, you know, remote sensing from aircraft, even at night, you know, using sideways looking airborne radar, false color photography, all of those things, and, and also Landsat, all of that technology, let alone the computer and the GIS materials that needed to sort it all out and say how damaging was it or not, that's all evolved. All that stuff's evolved since Torrey Canyon, basically. And I suppose now the key is making sure that you can stage and manage and learn the lessons quickly enough every day as you go through a response. Given that there are so many specialities and so many vested interests and technologies to kind of keep your arms round. So... Things have got more complicated, but when you were talking certainly early on about the sort of the the damage done by the dispersants and that, um, it's funny, those of us who work in development and particularly in humanitarian work would sort of recognise that you had to learn a do no harm principle, that you can't assume that yeah. 
the first thing you think will be good will be good. You do need to test it out because quite often well-intentioned people doing what seems intuitively the right thing to do yeah. can actually harm. So That's I do. Right. And it's, it's the acronym in the, in the spill community is NEBA, N-E-B-A, and do no harm is exactly right. And the danger with specialisms is that they all have champions, even if they're not motivated by flogging some snake oil magic potion that's not really proven or tested. Even if they're in good, acting in good faith, they're still, in a sense, vested interest. And, and a good on-scene commander or incident commander will have both, you know, an almost dictatorial executive function, but the good ones, he or she will always have all of these potentially competing interests pretty much in, their for, in the forefront of their mind. The best outcome is one that minimizes damage in as many of the sensitive compartments, both biota and human communities, as you can. And of course, there are you know, easy semantic scales that, that needed to be surveyed around the world, like what types of shoreline or inland spills are most susceptible to damage? And which parts of the oil? Is it jet fuel? Is it diesel? Is it petrol? Or is it heavy, reduced crude? Or these emulsions that form at sea? And all of these have different physicochemical behaviours. And some of them do not respond at all well to different technologies that work rather well in other areas or on other oils. So it's, it is complex. You've got to do what you can at sea. And first and foremost, you, you look to the casualty, be it an oil rig on fire or a, a tanker on, on a ground or a tanker sinking or on fire, all of the above. And of course, human casualties. I didn't list the human casualties in the table in the article because, I mean, there are not that many due to marine oil spills. There are far more ca human casualties resulting from you know, the first Gulf War and, and certainly the second Gulf War, let alone the Iran-Iraq War that preceded both of them in the 80s. You know, the human outcomes from that have been and are being, you know, disastrous right till today. So in a way, it's a little bit precious to sort of wring your hands about some bugs and bunnies that didn't quite make it. And I mean, the, the large part of our paper in the central section of it is really about those intractable problems that have been made intractable, not so much by the amount of oil or the fact that it was on fire or the fact that it blew up or whatever. It's the fact that those areas have not recovered from a human standpoint. And those areas are also in conflict still and many cases are corrupt. Just saying it's very difficult to mount any kind of a response if people are trying to kill each other or, or are not agreeing or are stealing from each other in one way or another. I was going to say, do you, do you want to give us a bit of detail? Because you've been looking at Agoniland and some of the pretty horrendous uh, results of oil extraction um, in Nigeria. Tell us a little bit about, you know, you work there and what's happening. Well, it's they've had oil coming out at, at pretty much in profitable ways since the well it was first discovered in the late very late 50s and by the time Nigeria became independent in 1960 it was very well known to everybody that it, it was a major crude oil reservoir it's 
quite shallow. The oil type is very, very low sulfur, and therefore it's called sweet because you don't have to process it as much to refine it. So it was a, it was a sought after asset to the global oil industry. And that has been dominated, especially in the onshore period. Even now, most of the oil, is, oil reserves are, are available onshore, which is unusual around the world in a sense. It's moved offshore partly because of security because the peaks are very densely, as you know, it's a dense populated part of Nigeria. And the local people did not move out just because it became industrial, which in the global north or the west would not have happened, probably. You've got this cheek by jowl juxtaposition of actually very poor communities of human beings, mostly fishermen based originally, but in the uplands, which are about a meter or more above high watermark, there is farming and there is there are also forest. You know, it's a huge mangrove forest with an equatorial rainforest inland. And it's, it's you know, probably the second biggest area of those habitats in Africa. But it's also the most damaged. And Shell came along and dominated the onshore. And all the companies have had occasional, actually quite small accidents compared to Torrey Canyon, Amoco Cadiz, Exxon Valdez, and certainly to the Deepwater Horizon and the Gulf War spills of 1991, they're tiny spills, just a few tens of tons at most. The spill that I have, the two spills that I got involved with, um, starting in about 2011, were the result of pipeline maintenance failures. The pipelines concerned run from the oil gathering stations in, in southeast Niger Delta to the Bonny Island terminal, where the oil is pumped onto, is metered and pumped onto supertankers that then come to the various oil refineries. What the local people decided to do when these two spills happened was, well, obviously I'm not going to classify the local people in one dimension. Many, many local people expected naturally the oil to be cleaned up. Well, in fine sediment mangrove areas, it's almost impossible to pick up all that oil. So expectations were understandably very high. The stakes were high. Tensions rose when some people, also poor enough, in my opinion, to be recruited by organized crime, took to stealing oil from that and other pipelines. There's always been some vandalism and there's always been some sometimes disastrous hot tappings of lines where ordinary people come along with plastic and, and tin drums, fill up the oil, the men having broken into the pipeline, and then they rush home and, and, and use that in, dare I say, you know, the cooking and, or in, in their vehicles. Once it's been refined, in inverted commas, in 45-gallon oil drums over open fires, so they basically boil up the stolen oil and it distills out according to its boiling point range. And they make very passable petrol and diesel from it. And of course, the heavy residue and the tar and all the carcinogenic smoke that gushes out from these fires, is just left there. It, it goes into the air and it goes into the soil. And there are hundreds of these refineries. You can see them as you fly over the delta from dark blue smoke 
coming out of the forest. And after a few years of operation, they become the size of about two or three tennis courts of just black oil. And Shell cannot stop that because it's not their doing. They can't even keep up with the leaks that have occurred anyway and the new leaks. You know, if they rush in, they have a security problem. When uh, Nigeria was a dictatorship, and it has been a dictatorship several times since independence, probably one of the longest running was under President Abacha. And he decided that the oil industry must have its oil, because that's even today where most of their foreign currency revenues come from. And long story short, Abacha decided the way to guarantee that the revenues would keep on coming in would be to suppress any illegal activity or any dissent of any kind in the most affected area, which is called Ogoniland. And eventually nine leaders, including artists, intellectuals, and the poet Ken Sarawiwa, poet and, and writer, were rounded up, tried and hanged convicted and, and hanged. And this, this is, you know, an outrage. 25 years ago, as I was writing that section on Nigeria in the article last autumn, and Shell can't be blamed for that. I'm sure they didn't collude in that. On the other hand, they've carried on making the money from this sweet oil, which is easy to extract. You know, it's about six and a half kilometers shallower than the oil in the North Caspian. And the shallower the reservoir, the less pressurized it is. The deeper the reservoir, if there is an accident, you, the more likely you are to get oil coming out under immense pressure. So you're going to get much more physical and fire damage and loss of life at the surface. And that, to a large extent, hasn't happened onshore or offshore there's been only one major blowout in Nigeria, and that was just in the near offshore. And we, we did a response for that in, in 1980 with Nigerian partners. And I remember back then in the, in the Field Studies Council lab, there was discussion about whether the impacts that were being reported on the villagers, the fact that they have these are, these are fishing villages with just boat access, no roads, and the oil was coming into the creeks. So it's like people were saying who'd been over there in the coffee room back in Wales. They were saying, imagine a small village in you know, Dorset or um, <laughs> Hampshire or in Holland, perhaps, you know, where it's all canals and ditches. Or indeed, the Fen Edge in Cambridgeshire. Imagine each of those dish ditches filled with oil and it not going away. No one's, no one's picking it up. No one's come up with a way of remediating it or replacing the mangroves. And so every day you go out, you come back with fewer and fewer fish. The fish are bearing, you know, the day you catch them, they've still got oil in their flesh. There's oil coming out every time it rains. And in the rainy season, it rains nearly every day. So you've got oil coming out of the flares from the oil industry. And that was what UNEP wrote about. And I recommend people look at the UNEP, United Nations Environment Programme 2011 report. It's, it's right in our reference list. And, and the photography alone is a wake-up call. And that report was looking to try and bring justice to the people of Agoni yeah. Land. But that's still, 
that's still being waited for, Justice. It is. And, and UNEP really have only just seen some of their initial recommendations over, over 10 years later begun. And I, you know, and I, in, in a recent Zoom call with um, the people trying to do the cleanup there, I, you know, having written the, a draft of this article, I challenged one of them to, to just get more involved with the human geography side, to get more involved with the social justice side. And of course, the, the websites of all the international oil companies are absolutely full of the good works that they're doing. And I'm not being sarcastic. They are trying to do good works. But in the case of Nigeria, after, you know, after I made my fairly passionate plea that they have to think of all the people and not just tar, if you'll excuse the pun, really, um, not just tar everyone in the local area with the same brush, that they're oil thieves and ne'er-do-wells because, you know, it's completely outrageous. I said this, and one of the executives on the call said, yes, but David, we're not here to solve world hunger, at which point I sort of, I sprayed my, my bottle of water out and said, no, but you can try to undo the damage that is about the oil, and then the world hunger in that part of the world will take care of itself, hopefully. They only have to get clean fish, have clean bathing water, because most people's water on in these coastal hamlets is just the creeks. That's where the kids was, would swim and play, you know, no more. Okay, no, well, we, we're hearing most of these big corporations are signing up to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which include ending hunger, but that's a different division. It's not the it's not the for-profit for divisions, it's the corporate social responsibility. But just to get you, when you were writing the article, I mean, you started off about oil spills, but the outrage is not about oil spills. The outrage is, is about where you think there's not sufficient outrage at the moment. Do you want to well, talk? Is. well, I think in the launching pad from that is we've got to do both. I mean, the people who are qualified and interested and, and experienced in oil spill response in its widest sense, including the human impacts, really have to up their game, in my opinion, firstly, to make sure that it's more equitably distributed in terms of coastal communities around the world are unevenly endowed with resources and capability and access and, and transport and infrastructure to respond to a spill. But just because they are still farmers and fishermen, doesn't mean that that's not a subsistence income or indeed an industry, an artisanal industry. And it doesn't mean they don't need decent places to live. And I don't think the sort of social responsibility and much less the environment and social governance trend of today is cognizant of that until we see the supply chain issue. If someone's producing something that we in the West use, then we are dependent on that supply chain. And if you follow it back, as, as many investigative journalists and, and geographers and scientists are doing, they'll find many injustices in the areas where such and such a crop is grown. I mean, the palm oil or the cotton or whatever it is. And in the case of oil and gas, as we move to the bigger problem that you've alluded to, that of climate change, the sort of macro problem, is that those supply chains to break the hydrocarbon one 
and get off our addiction to oil and gas. We have technologies already, but they need rare earth elements and copper and cobalt. Even if we move away from nickel and cadmium and zinc in battery technology, which we now can do and have done, it doesn't mean there aren't enormous holes in the ground. You know, single mines with four to 6,000 employees. And there will always be men and women who want to work for those expatriate companies in, in the Copper Belt, in Ghana, in, in all around the world, really. Because the choice is to do that or maybe not have any other income as the natural habitats and the, and the global population rise. You know, this is why I think we're seeing people who can hunt. You know, they've gone out and started hunting pangolins or whatever it is. But once COVID struck, that there was this possible link between habitat uh, deterioration, habitat diminution and simplification, and previously unforeseen concentrations of, of mammals in certain areas, maybe as they get isolated and corralled, Canny hunters will go and get those and sell them in the so-called wet market. And so whilst reading about all that this time last year, and you know, in common with everybody else in the world probably, I got to thinking about this rough draft of something on the history of oil spills from a kind of personal point of view. And it was that moment I felt I'd kind of wasted my life. <laughs> because if really, if we paid attention to the, the impact from the earliest days when it was getting undeniable that global warming was happening and that it was being abetted by anthropogenic emissions. You know, let's say 20 odd years, 20 something years ago. If we put the effort that was put in from the March 1967 with Torrey Canyon over the next almost 50 years exactly, if we'd had already 20 going on 25 years of effort at that level of intensity that was shown for oil spills in the rich world by and large, but we'd done it for the whole world and the target of our efforts had been adapting and mitigating climate change, I think we'd be significantly further on than we are now. And we certainly wouldn't have had or tolerated, I don't think, or if, we, or if Donald Trump had happened in 2016, I think his four years of, you know, depending on your point of view, passion or comedy or satire or beyond satire or just hell on earth, whatever your point of view, that four years would not have disrupted the Paris Agreement. Paris Agreement would have already been stronger because we'd have had just as much real effort as the oil industry and governments have done for 50 years, focused on something that was to actually replace oil and gas and use it only as a, an, as a specialty chemical. People should be rewarded for shutting in the wells. Keeping it in the ground should be the fiscal goal. So we, we need to invert yeah, market economics on its head, and I don't know, maybe that'll be possible, but I, I fear it's some future stage. I mean, just to finish off with, we've got a, a minute left. I, I, I work in the same sort of um, wicked world as, as you do, but I'm remain optimistic and that's partly because i've tended to look at extreme poverty and that has reduced 
pretty significantly over my lifetime. The sorts of horrendous scenes we saw of malnourished kids, which were normal in Nigeria back in the early 70s when we went there. I now find it very hard to find children that malnourished, except in you know humanitarian crises uh, areas. And also I've worked on Bangladesh where incomes have improved for the majority of people and where human development and life expectancy has really transformed. So that sort of gives me an optimism, but I mean, what sort of future are you? Can you be optimistic or do you think we, we really need in a way to, uh, yeah, to be realistic and maybe pessimistic? Where, where are you up to when you think forward? Well, I, I honestly think, well, first of all, just to, to pick you up on the Nigeria thing, I mean, the Biafran War, civil war in the late 60s, you know, when you and I worked for a couple of months in, in northern Nigeria, we didn't work in that area, but we knew we, everywhere we went, people told their stories of how people from the Delta who had been early contact with Western countries, England primarily, had, had got better English and, and ran the bureaucracies. But those people were run out of the north because they were on that Biafran side, as it were. So the people were still telling us about, well, ugly scenes of uh, retribution were being meted out. But it was fundamentally about oil as well. This is the, you know, the, when Biafra realized it, it had, it had virtually all of the oil, <laughs> they create, they drew the line around it and said Biafra and tried to secede. Uh, so that, yeah, but I, I take the point and, and the, the famines on the scale I suppose with Ethiopia being almost, you know, like a 1983, 84 with the Sahel drought, that, I, you know, I'm optimistic in that we, we can join those two dots up and see that the Sahel drought was not helped by what we now call anthropogenic climate change in retrospect. Very few people were talking about that Sahel drought in 84. I mean, you and I were probably reading papers about how our warblers coming into Britain were changing in their abundance long before they really changed in their arrival dates, yeah, due to global warming, they were changing in their abundance because of desertification. But I think I'm, I'm optimistic in the sense that we do seem to learn, but it seems painfully slow in the incremental way that human beings learn. It seems that we almost have to keep putting our hand, or better still, someone else's hand into the fire before we go, oh, yeah, now we should do something about that because it's really not tolerable to have this self-inflicted wound. And I still think, and this is where I get less optimistic, although we have slowly made progress and people mostly now seem to accept climate change is happening and it's dangerous and it's partly down to us and wholly down to us to do what we can. But I'm getting less optimistic when I think that, you know, the environmental movement is still... You know, people still stigmatize bits of it. There's a lot of, you know, neoliberal propaganda against wokeism, where, you know, the climate change strikes inspired by Greta Thunberg, you know, are scowled at by TV personalities, you know, who aren't, you know, are very proud of being petrol heads and biffing people, you know, producers who they disagree with, and other people who should remain nameless. And I just think that to still have that stigma about tree huggers and to allow neoliberals and populists and just megaphone men, and they are mostly men, 
to, to sort of shout at a teenager who's doing something that, you know, you or I in 1967, we would have just jumped out of our skin. We would have been petrified. And she's, she's made a huge difference. At mm -hmm. a time when people like George Monbiot, just a few years ago, you know, were saying that children, I think he's, he's quote, I've written down some sort of paraphrases here. There's one where he said, those in greatest need of rewilding are our children. And he was referring to going back to the Field Studies Council and how I started working with education in, in the open air. You know, I think Greta Thunberg and the people who've turned out around the world on these climate strikes, they may not be experts on rewilding, but they are reaching back to something that lots of the generations between you and me and, and these kids now have been moving away from with computer games and urbanization and lack of access to the countryside in, in, in all countries. So I'm less, I'm less optimistic about that, even less optimistic when I think that, you know, some of the other quotes I wrote down, a couple of them are in the paper and in the blog about by Gus Speth. I won't re repeat that. But Vaclav Havel, the first president of independent Czech Republic and friend of Frank Zappa, said there is a global revolution in human consciousness that is needed to improve the human condition. And a, actually a, a distant relative was a poet, P.K. Page, who in 1979, the, the year after Amoko Cadiz, wrote something like, art and the planet tell us, change your life. You know, and I think you can add that the ecologist E.O. Wilson, where he referred to cultural stories that are consistent with biological and physical reality is where the progress is needed to be made. So here are a range of artists and scientists, just human beings, basically, who understand that it's really down to us, not exactly what specialism you need to do this or that. We're getting most of the technology specialisms. We need to improve them, incentivize the markets around them, and get people mobilized on this cultural, not culture wars, transformation. So I, I think we better wrap up now. So we can see that humanity seems to be learning, but at a much slower place than required, and hope that uh, these cultural transformations, perhaps arts-led rather than science-led, or a combination um, of very different uh, specializations coming together. David, it's been great to talk to you. Great to catch up again and look at these things in some uh, some detail. And um, can I say thank you on behalf of the University of Manchester and the audience uh, that hopefully will listen to this for sitting down by the fireside and talking with me. Thank you. Thank you, David.